0: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play.
1: Greetings and thanks for joining us for this September 2018 edition of Radio Astronomy. I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and with me today in the studio is news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And Dave Golder, who is our production editor. Hello uh coming up we'll be talking to professor roberto Orosi from the national institute of astrophysics in rome um, who will be talking about the recent discovery of evidence of water on mars and um, we'll also be telling you our top stargazing tip for the month um and a lot has happened really since the last episode um, we've had new moons discovered around jupiter uh, and the prospect of water on the red planet all of which we've been kind of discussing in the office you know through the course of the past few weeks but one of the things that we've kind of been talking about the past few days is uh, the 100th anniversary of Hosts the Planets because um, it's about 100 years since the piece premiered at the Queen's Hall in London and we've got a nice uh, feature on the history and the inspiration of the the work in the September issue. Um, But were you guys kind of familiar with with the planets before we started talking about it, before it was in the ma- magazine?
2: I'd, I'd heard of it because it's one of those things that's sort of like in the public consciousness, but I, I hadn't actually ever sat down and listened to it. Um, so I actually I, I, I did that, you know, I, I brought it up on my computer and I, I, I listened to it through from start to finish for the first time. And it's, it's really weird because it sounds so familiar, mm. but I've never heard it before.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's influences, uh, you know, it, it, you only have to go online and go, influence the whole planets And it's in uh, films, obviously, but video games as well, you know. So, like, when we're playing there, I, I was amazed to find out. Well, actually, I kind of, on a subjective level, I knew that um, it was used in, uh, or an, it was influenced um, Zelda Ocarina of Time. The, and familiar <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was the same it was kind of like until it was actually pointed out to me it was like oh my god they're right it's, 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 it's Jupiter it's uh, the bringer of jollity yeah. and it's not the famous movie from Jupiter not the uh, the rousing you know uh, national anthem we never had I've done my country <laughs> not that bit but there's another more jolly bit it's like doo, 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 and they just yeah. kind of uh, yeah and you, you can hear it in yeah
2: it's, it's, and also isn't it um, Mars I think was supposed to have greatly influenced John Williams when he was writing the the Star Wars soundtrack,
0: uh, the Imperial mm. March, definitely, yeah, 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 you, yeah. Can,
2: you can hear that. It's not exactly the same yeah. as some of the other bits are, but it's you can definitely tell.
0: Well, I well, I also thought that uh, nobody else is going to know this, but (laughs) my film background, um, Disney's The Black Hole. I always thought the music from that was um, influenced by uh, Mars as well. But I did a quick bit of research on it today, and apparently it was influenced by Saturn. Which I must admit, when I was listening to Saturn, I can't hear at all. But apparently, the composer of that music, John Barry, actually went actually used Saturn as an influence. Mm -hmm. Can't quite hear that one myself. I'm still going for Mars. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think like. Really throughout, listening to the whole
1: work, you kind of get inklings of different sci-fi movies and stuff. But I think it just kind of comes with romantic music from you know from that kind of period. And uh, hmm. I, I I kind of get that a lot of the time when, I'm, when you're listening to other stuff like Tchaikovsky or Wagner, just those kind of big slushy strings mm. and big epic... Oh,
0: Vaughan Williams as well. Isn't yeah, like, yeah. Or, or you think of like yeah.
1: two, 2001 Space
0: Odyssey, you know, that's kind yeah. of an obvious... Um, I've got to admit, I think there is something to that. I mean, John Williams is just writing in that kind of... Style, mm. So it's obvious that, like, if you're writing about space, people are going to go, oh, it sounds a bit like Holster oh, the But there are, there are little moments, though, where I think you can definitely yeah. say, yeah, he, he, was, he was aware that. of
2: it. Yeah. I, I, I do think that, definitely, Holsters do some royalty fees from certain people. <laughs> it sounds like he's been ripped off a lot in the last couple of years.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, though, I was going to make some gag about, like, oh, my, well, you know, like, but why hasn't anybody ever done Pluto as well and then found out that somebody actually has. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and also the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in the mid two thousands, also apparently uh, commissioned four asteroid pieces as well. I
2: was going to say, like, have they done like the other bits of the asteroid belt, like Vesta and Ceres and stuff like that?
0: Uh, no, they've got they've, post, they've picked some weird ones for that. It was actually Osiris was one, which I had to look up and go, is there an asteroid called Osiris? So apparently, yes. The There's asteroids
2: called. Mission. Everything. <laughs> uh,
0: but then the other ones were to- to- tot to-tartis. totartis, You know, my pronunciation is terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and the other one is oh, Ceres. There is one for Ceres. Oh, okay, uh, but, cool. the, but the fourth one uh, isn't. Even though it's called the asteroids, is all about the the first person to die as a in a space mission, which is um, uh, a cosmonaut Kom- Komarov.
2: It's, I think it's just it's a nice sort of way to remember. Yeah. The 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 losses that we've had and our quest to get out into space.
1: Mm. Fair enough, yeah. Mm. Um, well, one of the things I thought about, I mean, as you say, it was kind of something that you're, you're always aware of, but then I kind of properly sat down to listen to it over the last month and just looking at the descriptions that he gives to the planets, because I wasn't, I wasn't originally aware that he was kind of making the astrological connection. Mm. So he calls like Venus the bringer, the bringer of peace. I'm thinking about what Venus is like or what we now know Venus is like. Yeah. I was thinking peace on Venus. It's got like, it's got like 465 degrees Celsius covered on volcanoes and acidic clouds The bringer of
2: peace. I, I, do, I do think they've got Venus and Mars sort of like the traditional views of them the wrong way around because yeah. Mars always seems like this. But it's not at the moment because there's a massive dust storm going on, but it's usually like this calm, placid place where not much happens. And
1: yeah. then
2: Venus where you've got, you know, acid rainstorms and it's hot enough to melt lead.
1: Um, <laughs> or, like, or, uh, peace. <laughs> Jupiter is uh, jollity, um, but obviously Jupiter's covered in massive, <laughs> massive storms, storms that have been yeah. raz- raging for hundreds of years. Yeah. But that's quite nice, actually. You were mentioning um, Ceres and Vesta there, because the other thing that we kind of, the other main Milestone that we've been talking about this month, and it, which is also features in the September issue, is the end of the Dawn mission. Mm. Jasmine Fox Skelly wrote us a feature on that. But it's, it's, it's been like a, an eleven year mission, basically, hasn't it? It's,
2: from when it first took off to when it got there, it was an eleven year mission. Um, it's it's one of those ones that actually, when you you look at it and sort of what they tried to do at the time, it was quite spectacular, really, because it was the first mission that was going to go to to and really look at not one, but two celestial bodies. It started off at the asteroid Vesta, which uh, is the the biggest asteroid that isn't also called a dwarf planet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then it stayed there for two years, did all of its research, and then moved on to go and see Dor- uh, Ceres, mm. which is the, the largest body in the asteroid belt. I think it takes up like a third of the mass of the asteroid belt, is just Ceres. Yeah. Um, and that one's, you know big enough and ugly enough to get itself into a sphere, so we call it a dwarf planet.
0: Cool. Yeah, because it's part of my job. You won't believe the amount of time we spent last month going about the the main cover line of the issue, like, can we still call it an asteroid? Is that okay? (laughs) And apparently, yes, we are still okay by certain classifications to call it an asteroid. (laughs) So if you do any, I think you'll find on us, we'll come back with, I think you'll find on you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I think kind of one of the things that really... Blew my mind about the the mission was the the idea that um, Ceres at one stage in a distant past had a had a global ocean. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of stuff like because you do look at it and think, well, that's kind of just—it's a lifeless body. But it's—that's yeah. the importance of these missions, really, isn't yeah, it?
2: Yeah, it's, it's—you sort of think about, you know, like the hunt for life going all over the, the solar system, and you're sort of going to these moons and stuff. But you always think of these asteroids as these these dead worlds where nothing happens. And and actually, one of the things that that Dawn found at Ceres was the fact that it has um, an active cryovolcano called Ohuna Mons. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's that's volcanism where instead of rock flow. As lava, it's it's water, ice, um, and water, and it's you know you think of these as I said as being cold, dead worlds where nothing happens, but they're not. They're actually really interesting they're to quite study. Quite dynamic,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah, I suppose that one of the main things that kind of maybe sticks in people's minds is the um, the shiny spots and the uh, Okator crater in uh, Ceres. Yeah. Um, just I suppose because I, I looked at a picture of um, just going back to Vesta, I looked at a picture of. What we what we knew Vesta looked like, and it was I think it was from Hubble images, and it's just this kind of round, you know, smooth sphere. And then it, I compared it with a picture of what we now know it mm. looks like, and it's like covered in craters. And you know, it's just yeah. cool that th- these missions just bring these these bodies closer to us. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: But you're missing the most important thing, which is that Vesta has got some craters that look like a snowman. <laughs> <laughs> <Does> it? <laughs> if, if, it's, if it's not actually officially ever called the snowman, we're going to be really disappointed.
1: <laughs> I, that,
2: that is how a lot of of things get named, which is just the people in the the office um, decide to call them something silly and the name kind of sticks. And then eventually the, the International Astronomical Union Kind of just go well. Everybody calls it that anyway, so <laughs> fine. We'll have a Mount Doom on Titan. You win.
0: <laughs> Frosty McFrost face. Then it'll be. Yeah, I mean, if they
1: put it out, that's what it would be. It be? <laughs> Frosty McSnowman. <laughs> um, but yeah, speaking of water, um, as I said earlier on, the one of the big stories this month was um, kind of tantalising evidence that there might be water um, on the below the surface of Mars. Uh, And Ezzie, you've been finding out about that? Um,
2: Yes. So this was one of those those stories that sort of kind of caught the public imagination a bit because we've been looking for water on Mars for, for years. Pretty much every mission that's gone and landed on the surface and most of the ones that have been in orbit as well as well, that's one of the things they've been looking for. Um, we've known for years that there's evidence of past water on Mars, and we can see it in that there's various rocks and minerals that could only have formed if there's water around. Um, not to mention the fact that you know you can see rivers and deltas and things like that. Um, but this one is particularly interesting because uh, Mars Express thinks they found an actual—it's um, more of a puddle <laughs> or a pond than than an underground lake. But um, they've, they've found un- water, or they think they found water, about a kilometre underground. And I actually talked to the main person who made this discovery, uh, Roberto Orasei, from the National Institute of Astrophysics in Rome. Um, so, Roberto, could you tell me a little bit about what exactly it was that Mars Express uncovered at the Red Planet?
4: We have been analysing data acquired from the Marsis radar. And we detected very strong echoes coming from 1.5 kilometers below the surface of the South Polar cap. These very strong echoes are even stronger than surface radar echoes. And they point to the presence of liquid water, uh, which is the natural material that best reflects radar waves.
2: So how certain are you that that this is actually water? Um, Could it be anything else?
4: We have been working on this for several years, in fact. And the last two years were spent just trying to um, examine uh, any other possibility. We have been doing a lot of uh, analysis, numerical modeling, and a lot, a lot of discussion. And we eventually were able to conclude that the most plausible explanation for the data, for the observations we have, and for their properties was the presence of liquid water. And um, so essentially we go by exclusion. Uh, It's the alternative explanations that we could think of essentially do not provide a clear, um, do not connect well with the data. If there was something else that was somehow, uh, for example, producing strange reflectors uh, into the ice, like a sort of, uh, let's say, mirror uh, effect due to cracks and voids and anything like that, that would not be observable for, from many points of view, but we have uh, at least nine observations over the same area and they all provide the same result. There are very strong eco's there. And that's essentially the, the, the main reason why we became convinced that there must be a high reflectivity medium there. And the only natural material to do that is Water.
2: Um, so whereabouts precisely uh, is this water that you are finding on Mars?
4: It's a body of water about 20 kilometers across, essentially because all of the energy of the radar pulse gets reflected by the surface of the water. So we don't get to to have enough rather radar eco power into the lake and back to us. But we know that uh, liquid water must be uh, of the order of uh, a about one meter thick. Otherwise, the radar would not be able to, to see it. So this is still a lot of water.
2: Um, when you say it's one meter thick, could it be deeper? Or is it that's sort of about what you think it is?
4: We have no indication of the possible depth. Uh, so it could be anything. We, in fact, expect it to be uh, at least of that, uh, of the order of a few meters it would be unlikely to have just a simple, such a very thin layer distributed over such a a large area. Uh,
2: So so this is going to be quite far down under the ice. Um, Do you think we'll ever be able to sort of get there and look at this water ourselves directly?
4: This is an extremely complex technological challenge, and it will be also a matter of budget to do that. Uh, We have problems digging into subglacial lakes on earth like the very famous lake Vostok in Antarctica um, because of their depth and the difficulty of digging through ice so there will be problems to solve but uh, eventually we will be able to get there
2: what kind of water do you think you'll be finding down there sort of I have visions of these great aquifers underground but I don't think that's actually what it would be like
4: we know that the water uh, there um, is, uh, contains salts, and this is something we deduce from the properties of the radar signal, uh, which is so strong that requires requires uh, very transparent ice above it, and ice is, uh, is very transparent when it's well below the freezing point. So even the water in contact with it must be below the freezing point, and this requires the presence of salts. So um, this means that we are seeing an environment that reminds of uh, certain uh, hypersaline subglacial lakes, like the uh, one that was discovered in the Canadian Arctic recently this year. And those environments are considered um, viable for life, even if they are very difficult for normal uh, terrestrial life. But we know that there are microorganisms that could survive in such an environment. So this is something that we uh, are hoping to explore, and, and we are very eager to to look into. But we have only few ideas what it could be like.
2: And so you mentioned there the sort of the, that life could survive potentially in these lakes. Um, what do you think this discovery has, has changed and affected people's views on the chances of finding life on Mars?
3: The main uh, significance of this discovery is the possibility that a viable habitat for life exists now on Mars. Um, We know that this uh, liquid water is below freezing point, is highly saline, but we know also that there are terrestrial bacteria that would be capable of living in such an environment. So uh, in principle, for the limited information we have on the characteristics of the subglacial water, we could transplant terrestrial life on Mars and expect it to prosper. Now, this is important because uh, the uh, past of Mars uh, we know was very different from the present. Mars was uh, 3.5 billion years ago was a temperate uh, 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 planet that was maintained at a temperature well above the the current one by a greenhouse effect produced by a dense CO2 atmosphere. The problem is that Mars was small enough, too small, to, to maintain this atmosphere that slowly faded into space. But there was enough time for life to emerge on Mars, at least That's, uh, the same time was available uh, on Earth. And that was the time in which life already existed on Earth, a few hundred million years. So um, the question, the big question is, is was, uh, could life evolve also on Mars, given that conditions were similar, the environment and the chemistry was similar, and essentially all the ingredients that were on Earth existed also on Mars? that's the big question that this discovery might help answering so if life existed developed then it might have survived to this day thanks to environments such as subglacial lake uh, lakes or water bodies of water and uh, the the main reasons so for for this uh, discovery to be important is that uh, it uh, raises hopes to be able to determine The answer of this question, has life ever arisen on
1: Mars? That was Professor Roberto Orase from the National Institute of Astrophysics in Rome. And now, Dave, you're going to tell us um, what we can see in the night sky this month?
0: Well, as ever, there's loads to see, uh, and you can find out all about the uh, specific details in our September issue. But for a couple of highlights, for those of you who like a challenge, Neptune will be at opposition on the 7th of September. Since a planet in opposition is nearer to Earth than at any other time, this usually means it's bigger and brighter, and so easier to observe. But with Neptune so distant, around about 4.5 billion kilometres away, the difference is so small, that's not really much of an advantage. So why mention it? Well, as our imaging the ice giants feature in the September issue points out, over the next few years in the UK, there are going to be lean times for observing and photographing the usual suspects. Mars, Saturn and Jupiter will all reach opposition south of the equator, and when they are visible, they will be mostly low on the horizon and affected by atmospheric blur. So now would be a good time to start taking advantage of the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune, which will remain much higher in the sky. Our feature gives you some brilliant hints on how to photograph the pair, and it's worth having a go because, uh, as the Royal Observatory Greenwich points out, a photograph of Neptune has never been shortlisted in the InSight Investment Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition before. However, if you want things a bit easier, there are two comets to look out for this month. You will need a telescope to see 46P Witanen as it travels from Cetus to Fornax in September. But 21P Giacobini-Zinner should be a brighter binocular object as it reaches Perihelion on the 10th of September, just south of Auriga, next to M37. Okay.
1: So that's it from us this month. Uh, you can find out more about the prospect of water on Mars and what to see in the night sky in the September issue of BBC Sky Night magazine, in which we also look at how to strike colour balance in astrophotos, find out the best dark sky places to visit in Portugal, and Professor Lucy Green writes about a new European mission to send a spacecraft to study the sun. Not to mention our regular sections helping you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. Until next time, it's goodbye from all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.